VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, April the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today, so he'll be the voice on the other end of the line when you call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So for the Growlers fans out there, the ice hockey variety, Growlers, of course, in Trois-Rivières tonight, looking to go up three love over their opponents at Trois-Rivières-Lyon. So good luck to the Growlers. And I hear good things about what went on this past Saturday when fans and potential fans and people who wanted to buy tickets to go see the Growlers basketball team, they were had an opportunity to meet the coach, Patrick Ewing Jr., of course, father, Hall of Famer, uh, local boy Cole Long, who was drafted third overall by the Growlers. Chance to pick your seat, meet the team or the members that were actually in attendance. So the season kicks off on May 25th at the Fieldhouse at Memorial University. The championship weekend schedule, Ottawa, August 12th to the 14th. Hopefully, our growlers are in it. I want to give a shout out. Good morning to the folks out on the West Coast who are trying to remember the life and the energy of Clyde Stump Williams, a prominent figure to say the very least in senior hockey on the West Coast for some 30 years. Clyde passed back in 2018. And he had a major league impact on trying to keep senior hockey alive on the West Coast. So Gary Keane and the board, Gary Hines, pardon me, and some of his buddies, they've been trying to get this going for a long time. And finally, this year, they're going to have the Stump Williams Senior Hockey Exhibition Challenge coming up on the 28th of April through the 30th. It's going to be at the Hotter Memorial Complex in Deer Lake. So it's intermediate senior hockey. The participants are the St. Anthony Eagles, Cornerbrook, Sims Distributing Western Juniors, the Deer Lake Wings, and the Labrador Huskies. And then there's a non-competitive division as well. The Reedville Fire Department versus New Home Solutions. You know, when when people take the time to put the energy in to remember those folks who gave decades worth of service, blood, sweat, and tears, because that's what it takes to be involved in senior hockey, I can tell you that much. So bravo to all involved. So way to go, Gary and team, and good luck to all the participants in the Stump Williams Senior Hockey Exhibition Challenge. It's an intermediate senior hockey. I'll throw that in there for Gary. All right, an interesting one. Today in history. Now, it's a little bit of, of a long time ago. So 1901 years ago today, Marcus Aurelius was born. Now, he was a Roman emperor from uh, 161 to 180, but he was as much known for his philosophical writings as he was for his reign as the emperor. Didn't believe in the class, or the, pardon me, society be divided by class or engagement in slavery. So one of the books, or the compilations put forward by Marcus Aurelius is called Meditations. It's advice how to live one's life, how you can find happiness without having much in the way of physical, uh, physical assets. So here's something from Meditations. How about that? Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which arm you today against the present. Remember that neither the future nor the past pains thee, but only the present. The things that you think about determine the quality of your mind. Your soul takes on the color of your thoughts. Look within. Within is the fountain of the good. It will ever bubble up. If thou wilt, ever dig. And he says, very little is needed to make you happy in this life. It's all within your way of thinking. Marcus Aurelius, how about that? Born in 121 AD. <laughs> That's digging deep, Dave. All right, let's keep going. So the work continues regarding blending the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district into the Department of Education. Probably a good idea. And we know that the K-12 students and their families are on the home stretch. 
try to put education on the front burner as much as we can here on the show to provoke conversation, whether it be the input that you would provide to the teacher allocation review, which is ongoing, which of course will have a lot to say about what class sizes look like, what class composition will look like. So I don't know if you've taken the opportunity to reach out to the government to put your perspective into the fold, but we can do it on this program. And something else that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, unless it's pink shirt day, is the whole thought surrounding bullying. Now, bullying has become a sort of a useless word at this moment in time because it's one thing to make fun of the freckles and the lunchbox and your clothes and your mother dresses you funny and that kind of playground stuff, all the way to what are absolutely acts of violence. I'm dealing with one family now who are trying to struggle through that exact issue. Their child is on the receiving end of absolute physical assaults. What we need to ensure is that none of these things get left in the shadows. If it goes beyond the taunts and into the physical realm, let's call it what it is. Assault, violence. Let's get the police involved. You know, administrators do their level best, but they're kind of hamstrung here. Their hands are tied in some part. So when that's happening in your child's school, you know, don't take administrative inaction lying down. Ensure that the authorities are contacted. I tell you, the stories that this family is telling me is just horrendous, and it should never be the way. And if you want to tackle it here today in any front, we can do that. And talk about one big other move of transition or merging or blending. It was one of the features of the most recent provincial budget is, of course, to merge the four regional health authorities into one behemoth. They talk about finding efficiencies, identifying redundancies. It's not in an effort to shed jobs, but if we do identify those opportunities, it's going to come with some job loss. The big questions will be, and if you're living in Labrador, this will be a concern for you. The big land always already thinks that they're not given the required attention in the world of healthcare and a variety of other government services. So what will the focus look like, the Northern Peninsula and into Labrador? But also the big question being asked is, okay, let's say however many jobs exist after the blend or the merge, where are they going to be? You know, if it becomes a case where it's going to be the lion's share of jobs centralized in town, that's not going to sit well with people. So we need to ensure that the offices around the province are still staffed, even if it's under the umbrella of one regional health authority. You know, we're the, the province is the size of a medium-sized city insofar as population goes. So it sounds like this can be completely manageable because you know full well in human resources and procurement and what have you, there's probably a lot of overlap that can be addressed. So if you want to talk about that, and of course David Diamond, the current CEO of Eastern Health, he's been named the transitional CEO to lead the planning team for what is a lot of work to be done. And in the healthcare world, Again, I really do think this is a critically important piece of work being done by not only Dr. Pat Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis, but all of their subcommittees, which have seen dozens of healthcare professionals put forward their perspective, you know, the frontline people who really know what's going on. There was opportunity through various town halls for members of the general public to also be heard. The blueprint for the implementation of the 57 recommendations is due mid this month. That's going to be the key document to have a better understanding about what the recommendations mean, timelines for implementation, and how that's going to look, how that's going to work, and what the end result will be for me and you. So that's coming this month, and there's never there's a never-ending pile of questions and concerns that people have regarding health care. So we can tackle that today, as we can every single day. All right, I'm going to keep bringing this up until I get a few more details. 
the initial announcement or proposal by Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group of Companies to take over Stephenville Airport, massive investment. It would operate as an airport continually. Now, it hasn't seen passenger traffic since January 2020. Sunwing has uh, implemented a new, I think, once a week to Toronto. But people think that it was too good to be true. And it would have created a lot of jobs and a massive influx of cash, which would have been just super news for the West Coast, in particular the Stephenville area. The town council and Mayor Rose continue to be optimistic on this front. There's still some unknowns out there, but someone gave me an article that was in Urban Airport. It's an industry journal. And it was regarding investment made by Diamond into Urban Airport, a UK infrastructure tech startup company, to invest in one of their Air One vertiports. Now, I had no earthly idea what a vertiport was, but it's basically a pop-up airport. And they would be doing things like drones, and that's one of the big plans that Diamond had for Stephenville. So he's made this big investment here. They say there's going to be two additional vertiports in North America, one in Atlanta, Canada. So reading between the lines, I'm just guessing that Stephenville, given what Carl Diamond himself has said about the pending investment coming from the Diamond Group companies. So maybe I get myself caught up by reading between the lines a little bit too much. But when he makes this investment in a company that's directly in line with what he proposed for Stephenville, I'm taking this as good news. So maybe in the near future we'll hear some more. But if it's not going to happen, then I guess we're de- we deserve that type of answer. But if it is, a bit more information would be interesting. But they quite clearly say that one of the two Verta airports headed to uh, North America, one in Atlanta, Canada. So what do you think? All right. We all know the kerfuffle surrounding the issues in the oil industry and the waited with bated breath about the release of the environmental assessment for Equinor and their operations out in the Flemish Pass. And we'll see what, how that evolves and where all the jobs are and what have you. There hasn't been much in the way of exploration in the last couple of years, and the CNLOPB land sales have been deferred for 2022. The Chinese national oil company, national offshore oil company, CNOC, was the only company to punch a hole last year. They came up dry, what they call in industry terms a duster. So they had brought in the Stennerforth drill ship to uh, to drill on the deep water Pels well, some 450 kilometers or 460 kilometers off our shores. But it it came up dry. Now they say they're abandoning all of their assets in this part of the world, I guess uh, surrounding the potential for further sanctions. And also when you come up dry, that gives you every reason to be down in the mouth about potential here off our shores. So CNOC said they're done. They're not going to participate any further here. Well, as of, as of now, anyway. But we also have another new potential player. Uh, that's Qatar Energy in a partnership with ExxonMobil. And they're going to do some work off our shores, we're told, and what that means, because Qatar Energy is massive on natural gas, and we know the abundance of natural gas off our shores. So I'll add that into the mix, because I thought that was an interesting uh, tidbit. You know, the juxtaposition of one company saying, I'm done, another massive player with a well-known entity being ExxonMobil, they're going to be doing some work here, apparently, and the natural gas attraction might be what drives it. Also on that front, yesterday the U.S. Energy Secretary, uh, Jennifer Granholm, made a pretty sweeping announcement about the fact that, here's the quote, the United States backs a continental approach to clean energy that would see the U.S. and Canada working together on critical minerals and other resources to bolster security. So we know the federal government had a big... (laughs) 
plan for the Atlantic Loop, and it didn't come to pass. Now, all of a sudden, their big announcement requires more due diligence to see what the federal government involvement should be. So we'll see. But in the world of clean energy, we know we got it. Whether it be something associated with wind uh, related to water electrolysis and the production of hydrogen, which is absolutely a clean source, might be very attractive. Also, some of the hydro potential. So inside of those envelopes, and don't forget the mention of critical minerals, we are sitting on some extraordinary finds of these critical and rare earth minerals right here, mostly in Labrador. So this could be very good, and you wonder what the proactive position that our own provincial government would take and our own federal government would take. Because if they're going to lean on, and reading between the lines with Minister Stephen Gibo and saying that it's going to be high bar to pass to see any future offshore development, that's if this particular liberal government remains in place, these types of partnerships, I mean, the American market is what we've all kept our eyes on. So if they're going to formalize this, and we could absolutely be right in the middle of it, and stand to profit enormously off a formalized relationship. So I'd be curious to hear what Minister Parsons knows about this particular potential arrangement formally with the United States government. Not just looking for markets, because we know, even with the Atlantic Loop, some of that maybe died on the vine when transmission in the state of Maine got voted down via a referendum. But there are still opportunities, and we can and should be bullish on them here in the province. Okay. Yesterday, at the 11th hour, Prime Minister Trudeau and the federal liberal government called for a public inquiry into the decision made by the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history. This, of course, to do with the protests or the occupation or whatever you want to call it that happened in Ottawa with that particular convoy. So it had to be done. It was legislated to have to take place, and the report is going to be due by no later than February 20th of 2023. Okay. Um... Yeah, I've got that one. Thanks, Linda. So here's a couple of things. Inside the release, it says they're going to talk about the evolution of the convoy, the impact of funding and disinformation, the economic impact, and efforts of police and other responders prior to and after the declaration. Okay. A fellow named Paul Rulo has been named the commissioner. He sat on the bench of the uh, Ontario Superior Court and the Court of Appeals. So I don't know much about Mr. Rulo. Here's the issue. It's fine and dandy to talk about the invocation of the Emergencies Act to focus on the convoy, but it absolutely has to deal with what the government knew. They have not said they're going to waive cabinet secrecy at this point, but without a doubt, if there's going to be an inquiry into the Emergencies Act, it can't only be about the protesters. It has to absolutely include how and why the government did what they did which included freezing some bank accounts. Now, some of the stories about the single mother with 50 bucks in the bank had her bank account frozen. Well, you had to buy that stuff. But we have to examine what the government's role is here. We have to, for any comprehensive look at this issue. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is digging into it, and they've filed suit. I also wonder what the status is of some of the court challenge to the continued mandates to be fully vaccinated to travel via air, for instance. It's absolutely high time to talk about the merit or the requirement to keep that mandate in place but that was the prime minister's office yesterday at the 11th hour saying that this inquiry will take place and then some review of when former ethics commissioner mary simon had a look at the prime minister's family trip to aga khan's private island in the bahamas 
He was found in violation of four different uh, codes of ethic. The privacy commissioner is obliged by law if that she identified a crime had be, been committed, a la fraud. She had to uh, notify the authorities. That didn't happen. The RCMP took a cursory look at it and decided not to pursue any legal action on that front, but that was also part of the news yesterday. If you're interested, we can do it. A couple of quick ones. And I guess for information from my buddy Kevin, for information only. Yesterday, encouraging news is that there was no additional deaths reported. And it's the first time in more than a month that that's been the case when the government updates their COVID hub. There remains 25, 24 people in the hospital, pardon me, that's down one from Friday. Five of them are in critical care, critical care, that's down from seven on Friday, but no additional deaths. So we're going to get there. We are going to get there. And you wonder whether or not the definition of fully vaccinated will change from the two-shot primary series into include boosters and otherwise. Also, they talk about the fact that the bulk of the deaths happened in hospital or long-term care facilities. Nearly half the COVID-19 deaths in Newfoundland Labrador were the result of outbreaks in hospital and long-term care. That's according to the data, and that was CBC got it out of the government. Um, that, that, that 97 people died in hospital after being admitted due to COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. 36 people died in long-term care or personal care homes. So that's where we've seen the bulk of these unfortunate passing, but no additional deaths reported yesterday, so that's good. And then it's the focus on the antiviral treatment, uh, Paxlovid. It's extremely restrictive as to who's actually eligible to get this. Let's see if I've got it here. You can read out the eligibility requirements. First off, you've got to make your way all the way to St. John's to see an infectious disease specialist. And here's the current guidelines. Paxlovid is only available to people who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated and are not in hospital, along with anyone who tests positive and shows symptoms within five days of requesting the drug. Those over the age of 80 can only access the drug if their vaccinations aren't up to date, including a booster dose. So this story surrounds Rod Dion, 100-year-old survivor, veteran of the Second World War. He's now tested positive, and through advice from his nurse practitioner, was to be prescribed Paxlovid. And... It's been denied. So I know there's not a lot of it around. The province received some 500 doses in January. There hasn't been 200 people uh, granted this course of Paxlovid antiviral treatment. You know, the, some of the rationale has been that it's only for those who are unvaccinated because that was the only test group for the clinical study of the effectiveness of Paxlovid. But if it's going to keep people from dying, I mean, is there more to it that I'm not seeing here? So. Good morning, and we wish you nothing but the very best, Mr. Dion. And it's not just about Rod Dion. It's about everyone else, seniors, super seniors, who see the stories about this drug but are unable to get it and the big questions as to why. Same thing with the antivir or pardon me, the rapid test kits. There's only three problems in the country that don't dole them out for free. Us, PEI, New Brunswick. So I'll ask one more time. Is it because the other provinces are paying extra monies out of provincial pocket for the provision free of the rapid antigen test kit? Because I guarantee you, for folks who are struggling today, they're not going out to buy the test kits. They're not. Very likely they're just taking their chance, and that's not going to be helpful for them or anybody else. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. And, of course, the big story in the world of Twitter is that Elon Musk has purchased the company for $44 billion American in an effort to restore free speech. Here's something for your consideration. The richest guy in the 2021 Forbes 400 owns the Washington Post. Number two, Musk, now owns Twitter. Number three, Zuckerberg, owns Facebook. Numbers five and six started Google. Numbers four and nine started Microsoft. 
Number 10, Michael Bloomberg owns Bloomberg. Free speech, you say? It's the concentration inside the uber-wealthy of all of those types of outlets. That's the concern, isn't it? Not that you can't say the N-word on Twitter. You know, it must be nice to have $44 billion, although $25 billion of it is debt. A bunch of banks, including uh, CIBC and the World Bank of Canada, are the lenders. Even at the most, even at the modest interest rate, the payments uh, for that debt is going to be more than Twitter's ever earned in a single year. So anyway, the concentration of all of those outlets amongst all those rich folk isn't that the major concern? All right, we're also taking emails. It's open on fiasm.com. But let's get a tune on the go before we come back and speak with you. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right. 1986, for the fourth straight week at number one on the R&B charts, Prince in the Revolution. Kiss. Don't go away. Ooh, welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, I must say. Uh, just wanted to have a chat this morning on... And two things, really, Patty, related to the offshore and uh, the, the developments that are ongoing. First is um, I'd advise people to tune in on Saturday at, at 3 o'clock. Uh, Nancy Sneddon has a On The Money show on VOCM. Yep. And this Saturday, the topic will be the future of Newfoundland and Labrador offshore and Baden Nord in particular. But it's called Your Money. It's also on tonight at 7. Just throw that out there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, so, uh, Dave Mercer of Unifor Two One Two One, Rob Strong, of course, whom everybody knows from the oil and gas uh, industry, and myself discuss just that: the the future of the Newfoundland Labrador offshore, uh, the value of it to the Newfoundland Labrador economy, and the Newfoundland Labrador uh, future. And uh, it's a it's a pretty in-depth, if I say so myself, a pretty in-depth analysis of what we have and where we can go with what we have. And that brings me to Stephen Gibo. And there's some discussion going on now, as you know, on what Stephen Gibo indicated in the recent statement. And if you actually look at the context of that statement, it's it's... Not what a lot of people are thinking it, it, it may be or is. What Stephen Gibo actually said, well, and I can quote him, it's up to the Impact Assessment Agency, not the federal minister, to make decisions on future oil projects. And he also indicated that he wasn't shutting the door on offshore Newfoundland Labrador. And he also indicated that Assuming this government remains in power, uh, the environmental regulations will be more stringent. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all know we have to protect the environment. And if it takes more stringent regulations to protect the environment, so be it. So then the challenge is out to companies like Equinor and other oil companies to develop the technology to deal with any new regulations that may come down the environmental tube. Right. And what I'm suggesting this morning is that if you look at their record, they're quite capable of doing that. And I have, I have every confidence that as these companies go forth and develop our offshore, they're going to be able to deal with environmental restrictions. The important thing here is that it's been taken 
out of political hands and put into environmental analysis, which is where it should be. Yeah, okay, a couple of things. So the Beta Nord find was uh, evaluated by the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, but that was done prior to the changes in parameters and how, how the program was or protocols were stiffened. That's true. I, you know, the minister is quite clear on saying there's going to be a pretty high bar to pass. And for yeah. me, it also sounds like it's just a bit of political protection or deflection to say that it's strictly up to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. If that was the case, why does final approval come from the minister's office? So it's kind of hard to have it both ways on that front. This will always continue to be political decisions, whether it be the Liberals or the Tories, whoever holds the seat of government, there will absolutely be political influence on the establishment of regulatory processes, final approvals and or red lights put up so how you know i saw what the minister said but if that's the case then why did his office request an additional 40 days why did the final approval come anywhere from the minister versus the agency itself so it's really difficult to have your cake and eat it too in that world yeah and i really think you know the when a decision is made based upon environmental examination then the, the decision then becomes political and it comes through the minister's office the unfortunate thing is that the Newfoundland Labrador government over the last, since 2015, have really abdicated their role in the environmental process because according to the Atlantic Accord, the environmental process is supposed to be joint between the two levels of government. And over the last five years or so, the Newfoundland government, the Newfoundland Labrador government, has pretty well allowed the feds to have unfettered control over the environmental process. Well, that's not what the industry says. And uh, on the other side of that... No, but uh, wait now, wait now. That, that's what actually happened. That's why the Beta Nord environmental process came straight from Ottawa. The Newfoundland Labrador government had no say, nothing to do with it. Except for the data and other conversations. But I, I know that there's people are loath to offer any applause or congratulations or kudos to the Liberal government if they're not fans of the Liberal government. But do you think there's something to be said for the fact that the province was probably went a long way into securing this particular green light? I think the, I think the province did have a say on the political level of it, yeah. I think Minister Parsons did a, a terrific job in and 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 Premier Fury also uh, did a good job on uh, making it very, very clear to Ottawa that the Bay to Nord project, one, was of value to Newfoundland and Labrador, two, met all the environmental standards, and three, go ahead. I think, and I think had that decision not come down, there would have been, I hate to say the word crisis, but there would have been a heck of a lot of... Uh, trouble between the provincial or provincial government and the federal government in Ottawa. Yeah, I, I think there would have been lasting impact there. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Uh, it certainly would have made some of the seats that were really liberal blowouts a couple of elections ago tightened up a lot in the last most recent federal election, including a conservative seat being won by Mr. Small. It would have had a problem, but for where I sit, and yeah. we've long said, you know, seven seats, da 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 The political calculation for the federal liberals was how many seats represent 
represented by Liberals in Ontario, Quebec, and BC were allowed in opposition to this project versus the future of seven seats in Newfoundland and Labrador. I think the calculation was on the other side, but you're right. It would have meant a real problem for the provincial Liberals and the federal Liberals here. And of course, time heals a lot of wounds, but this one would have stuck for a long time. Very similar oh, yeah. to being called a bunch of welfare bums by the Conservatives there some years ago. That stuck. That really hurt them, you know, long term. Well, I, I was told uh, that in, in case it happened that the federal approval didn't come down, uh, then our provincial government had a backup plan. Now, what that backup plan was, is, I don't know, but they did have a plan to deal with the issue had it, had it come down adversely. It didn't, and we're off to the races, and uh, it's, it's, it's great for the Newfoundland Labrador economy. And we're seeing that happening now up in Bay Bulls. We'll see ExxonMobil doing some drilling. BP is going to be doing some drilling in the next year or two. And you mentioned this morning uh, the Japanese are out of it, but uh, Guitar, which is a major player, has, has its eyes turned toward gas and oil. I mean, uh, Newfoundland Labrador has the possibility and the potential of being an energy warehouse. There's no doubt about that. But whether it's oil, uh, liquid natural gas, wind, uh, we have, especially wind, we have an abundance of it. So the future augurs well. And, and again, I invite people on, on Saturday to turn in to the On The Money show at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon and have a listen and make their own mind up. Yeah, the gas is there if companies want to take it. At this moment in time, they haven't been able to apply a business model that works for them because their gas, they're sitting on it. They're using it to inject into the ground to pump the oil out. So if they had a market for the gas at a price point that made sense, they'd be at it because approvals, I mean, you're already operating out there. There's no additional real damage or concern, as far as I can understand. I think the next big thing will be, you know, if there was a bit of quid pro quo or understanding that the next issue surrounding the federal-provincial relationship will be who's going to pay that offshore royalty given it's outside the economic protective zone. That's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars worth of debate. I'm imagining some compromise will be in the offing as opposed to the province's stance currently is that the country negotiated, not the provinces, so they should foot the bill, which I kind of agree with. I'm off to the break, Doc. Uh, Last word, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just finish with this, Patty, as an indication of technology. And I've heard you mention it, and uh, I've read up a bit on it, uh, that like Equinor right now uh, is actually capturing the carbon and uh, returning it to the hole that they took it out of in the ocean, you know? Uh, it's an amazing technology, that, uh, and it's an indication of where the technology of oil and gas is headed over the next three, four, five decades. Yeah, uh, there's 137 mitigation measures that Equinor had part of their proposal. And carbon capture, it's not all created equal. There's different ways that it's done. Sometimes it's smoke and mirror. Sometimes it's actually effective and protecting the environment, but not always the case. Not saying that Equinor is not on the right track, but we hear carbon capture thrown around when sometimes they're not doing anything with it. You know, they're just burning it on the other end. So it's one thing to capture, another thing to bury it, another thing to actually uh, deal with it properly so that it doesn't become a contributor to a greenhouse emission. Anyway, I'm off to the break. Doc, appreciate right, your time. Take care. Have a good week. You too. All the best. Yeah. All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking shrimp and herring, doctors, then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. 
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Uh, just announced by Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador was uh, an announcement regarding car share. We know that the lack of rental cars and or the cost of rental cars is keeping people from maybe visiting the province. But now the largest bride sharing company in Canada called Toro is launching in this province just in time for the peak season. Guests will be able to book vehicles in the province beginning on May the 17th. So that's going to be a welcome announcement by tourism operators and the hospitality industry right across the province. That's a good one. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the inshore representative at the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yeah, nice to talk with you again. It's been a while. Uh, nice to stay here on the West Coast. Before uh, I get into the uh, the serious issues I want to talk about, I know you're, uh, I think you're pretty well sure you're a Habs fan, so we'll have to uh, cheer for another team. I'm going to, I've given my buddies a hard time about the Leafs uh, over the years, but I'm going to be pulling hard for the Leafs this year. So I'll put that out to all my uh, Leafs buddies, and uh, I think they'll do well anyway. Yeah, I don't, maybe. Uh, they certainly look good some nights. Uh, I'm I'm full on with uh, Colorado here now. Let's go. Yep, there we go. It's good stuff. Uh, uh, Patty, you know, it's uh, a lot of positives in the fishery with the increases in snow crab and really the highest price we've ever had. Uh, you know, and lobsters market is looking well. Those fisheries are underway now in the south and southern part of the west coast. Things seem to be going well again. But, you know, we have some uh, very, very dire situations. Um, and in my area in particular, uh, with respect to the 2J Southern Labrador snow crab quota, which was cut by 20% after, you know, many, many cuts over the years, they're facing very difficult situation there. And now the uh, golf shrimp decision, which uh, basically I wanted to elaborate on a bit more because of the process there. So a couple of things I want to touch base on was, one, the uh, so, you know, there's science, uh, uh, there's science meetings and then shortly after that there's what they call the advisories and that's where management and the science and industry gets together and there's recommendations made and yes we understand government the minister dfo has the final decision but you'd like to think that the consultation is is genuine and and in in many cases it is right you know uh yeah you always don't get exactly what you want but uh i just give a couple of dates here for you we had the golf shrimp advisory on february the third uh, there was an interim quota announced just a couple of weeks ago, and the final decision was not released until uh, uh, the 21st, which was on, uh, looking at my calendar here, which was on Thursday. I mean, we're talking about two months there, basically, right? Um, and and uh, then the the... I mean, you know, whatever the situation is, it doesn't take that long to make a decision, and nor should it, would be my point. Just another example is the four-hour hearing advisory, and the science was very positive on that, and, you know, a lot of positives, everyone agreed. I would say there wasn't any debate like there was on shrimp. The advisory for four-hour hearing was March the 7th. Uh, and we're still here, and we still don't have a decision yet on that. And and uh, people, you know, um, want to go fishing. There's a need for bait. I mean, it's a very expensive thing. And while there's a bait fishery, people need to use commercial quantities of net in many cases, uh, like on the northern peninsula where they fish deep water to try to get some bait, which is right now, like herring, is upwards of 85 cents to a dollar. So that's expensive when you're trying to catch crab or lobster. Mm. That's a lot of money out of your pocket. So... I mean, I think it's time now, and I've made the I've made recommendations as a form, uh, you know, a representative at these meetings to say, look, yeah, you need to review 
the information, but this, it, it shouldn't take any longer. In my, in my view, three weeks, right? And maybe it's time we focus on getting something done there. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a fair analogy, but the old, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a cliche, but justice delayed is justice denied. I think we all feel that that's fair, right? So it just, it just shouldn't take two months for these decisions and is leaving people in limbo for no good reason. I mean, if the decision is not... In, in your favor, well, at least it's still good to know is what I would say, right? Well, we don't always get the answers we want, but getting the answers in a timely fashion is in all our collective best interest. The ripple effect of shutting down some of the herring and mackerel fishery has been a problem. And I would never really quite understand why it seems to me anyway, and I'm not in the industry, obviously, is DFO decisions, generally speaking, come at the 11th hour. All the time, on all the species, all the issues, whether it be announcing the dates of the recreational food fishery, all the way to, you know, establishing the IQs for the season, when it's going to open, when it's going to close, the distribution of quota. I mean, I just don't know why it takes all that time. Lord knows they didn't make the decision the day before they announced it. It's been in the works, well understood, due diligence, and, you know, all the workings inside of DFO, but it always seems to come really late. If I'm trying to, you know, crew up for a season, it'd be nice to know what kind of quota I've got. If I'm going to crop for a season, it'd be nice to know when the season starts. So I'm not really sure why it always takes so long. No, and and I really appreciate that. And it's taking longer. That's the, it seems like it's, t- it's not. It is taking longer now than it has been before overall. So, I, you know, I hope the department, I hope the, the minister is listening and, and will say, you know, whatever these decisions are, I mean, you, like you said, we hope it's good news for sure. But uh, And look at hearing, I, we don't see where there would be any issue, and there hasn't been issues in the past. So what is holding it up would be the question. Finally, I would say, and which is maybe even more disturbing than that, is on the Gulf Shrimp, we had a precautionary approach. I think you've heard this term where there's a formula put in place. That's where fisheries are going now. Yep. It kind of, you know, it's a formula and you agree. And, you know, I was part of that back in 2013. The department invested, uh, and rightfully so. I mean, we, we traveled to uh, uh, myself and Randall Ganger, the chair of the 4 Hour fleet, several times to Quebec City to, to uh, work with science to make sure we top, you know, the best formula at the time. And, okay, so they determined this year that the formula needs to be changed. So that was fine. And they, they, they came without any consultation, said, at the science meeting, well, here's a new formula, and it's way more conservative. It's going to cut your quotas more. And we said, no, you can't do that. you got to at least keep the formula that's there, and let's work on a new one. So that was fine. You know, I'm part of that working group, and we already had a meeting. Uh, to work on, you know, for next year, a new formula, fully expecting that the uh, that the old formula would stay in place. I mean, that was kind of a uh, contract, as, uh, as as best way I can put it. And turn around and they say, nope, we're, we're ignoring that. We're ignoring the working group, in my view, and we're just going to implement this uh, new new uh, formula, which uh, cuts your quota 30% over the next two years. So, uh, you know, and besides that, the, like I said, the issues we had to deal with with 2J are going to be extremely difficult. We're going to meet with those harvesters next week. But right now, the northern peninsula, you know, uh, 40 enterprises there, along with three plants, um, facing a very, very difficult situation Understood. in that area. So uh, I just wanted to highlight those points and... Uh, appreciate the time for sure. Uh, and No problem, Jason. You're welcome. Uh, just because I have so many numbers floating around my poor old head, Snow Crab landed at 760, right? The uh, price is 760. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks for this. Yeah, thank you. Take good care. Bye. Right, bye. It's Jason Spingle, inshore rep of the FFAW. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Simeon. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Randy. Uh, Patty. Uh, Patty. Yep. Uh, I just want to uh, express my this uh, this. Uh, I don't know what to say. I, I can't find the right word for the healthcare Newfoundland healthcare system, and I'm very very disappointed and very dismayed what I'm hearing this morning. And last week I, I heard it. And I'm sure there's news that's been covered by uh, by VLCM, I believe, and also CBC uh, about uh, a patient from Nato. She's trying to get the uh, kidney transplant. Oh yes, uh, Mr. Poker. Yeah, 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 Mr. Poker. And um, my name is Simeon Jacobish, and my wife is named Ruby Jacobish. And Simeon is my cousin, Simeon Poker. And his wife's name is Ruby Poker, too. So there's two Simeons, two Simeons from Narasis, a couple. So anyway, I just want to express my, uh, my uh, I don't know, I don't know what, I can't find the right word for it. I might as well say aggravating result to a slap in the face uh, to the you know, people of Labrador. So anyway, I just, just one second, yeah, Simeon. The, the yeah. poker story, if I remember correctly, like one of his brothers did a big long run across Labrador to raise money and awareness. They all tested to see if they were a match for their brothers, and one of them came back as a, uh, is a match right? Yes, it is a match. Absolutely. you right on the ball there, uh, Patty. And that's, that's I mean, uh, I, I just don't know. Maybe your viewers or uh, your listeners, your uh, your the minister of uh, problems or or uh, premier, the doctor himself can uh, can answer this question, can answer it to the Inu people. Is it a slap in the face? Uh, a person with, with what you just comment about the match, the the fighting for his life, uh, uh, Simeon Poker. And his family, they are in St. John's, actually, and I saw them, uh, I saw his dad there last week. Anyway, and I mean, I just don't get it, Patty. I just don't get it. It's really hard to sink in my little freaking brain. Okay, so what's maybe actually my, holding my, things? My, maybe my brain cells are not functioning right because I'm Inu. I, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I just don't get it. I mean... Uh, the Canada Health Act of 19... I'm, I'm no lawyer. I don't want to mislead your uh, your listeners. I'm no lawyer, but I, I but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a former good investigator. I can do a lot of good research too, like like anybody else. I'm not a lawyer, but I, but I know that in 19 uh, the Canada Health Act in 1984. That uh, I mean, I've been dealing with Health Canada uh, for the last so many decades. Uh, I mean, so many years as a chief. Uh, a band chief and uh, been advocating for my people within Labrador, and it, I'm 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 up to the point where I think uh, uh, Health Minister Haggy should step aside and 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 go back where he where he came from. He can practice this uh, this systemic racism that's been happening in within this province of Newfoundland, not Labrador. Labrador never. Uh, see that uh, to be part of uh, of Newfoundland. Uh, so I don't. Uh, I just say Newfoundland, but Labrador is not part of uh, of, of of Newfoundland. So anyway, my disappointment, as, as you can hear, probably hear in my voice today, in my tone of uh, my 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 voice. Uh, in 1984, similarly, it does not mention an indigenous peoples. I mean, despite the emergence of constitutional Aboriginal rights, just a few years earlier. The Health Canada itself consp- conspicuously uh, 
min- minimize uh, the Inuit people of healthcare. Coming at eight or 14 pages stating that I'm referring uh, the uh, Yellowhead Institute that the that the saying that the short point of referring for future jurisdiction jurisdictions of mostly limiting the federal government role of the uh, ream of the funding. I mean, Indigenous Health Services long, long, long public health care system initiated in the 1960s but have also been a continued characterized as the oppressive system. And that's, I mean, I mean, look at the Jordan principle. How long the, the Cindy Blacks have to fight to get, I mean, when Jordan principle was in the hospital, provincial, provincial uh, department and also provincial government and federal government disputing who has the jurisdiction over this little young, young uh, Aboriginal boy. While they fight, the young boy died in a hospital. That is a genocide right there. And this is what's happening in Newfoundland today, in that healthcare system. You know, it's a genocide, and, and something has to be done. But I, I have talked to uh, my cousin Prode, and he's a longtime uh, a colleague of mine of uh, fighting with the Aboriginal rights for our people in Davis and Narwashish. And, and I'm, I don't have a title, and I don't need a title to carry my honor for my people. I don't. And uh, today, this week, I'll be seeing my family doctor in Goose Bay, Happy Valley Goose Bay in the hospital. I've been waiting long, too, and I've been advocating myself, uh, trying to get the, uh, the surgery. I signed the, I signed the forms, but Samio is more... More critical at the stage. You have more serious problems. I understand, Simeon. I understand the issue. I just want to finish off saying this. I'm going to ask my family doctor to take the tube off my tube off and and walk away from it because I know where I'm going. I'm going six feet under because they are not, they are not, I am convinced that they're they're doing that to us. So anyway, I'm just, I'm I'm disappointed. Prode and his family are going to be flying to Toronto, go emergency, and and, and try to get the the help that he needs. That that Simeon program has been refused Medicare within this province. He is being refused. He is being refused. So talk to me. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm just going to jump in here now before I go to the news. Yeah. I wish you well and Mr. Poker well as he gets his uh, long-awaited transplant. I know he's, his health is failing rapidly, so hopefully this is what he needs and it's done quickly. I appreciate the time, Simeon. Thanks for the call. Good luck. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Will I get Liam's uh, call in here before we go? Okay, let's go to line number two. Liam, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, So I just wanted to call. uh, uh, Again, as you know, uh, of course, I'm in the theatre. And uh, and I just graduated Sheridan College with my degree in, uh, with my triple major in acting, singing, dancing, and a minor in directing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And, uh, and so myself and my uh, creative uh, partner and also my roommate and graduate, we've just started uh, our very own theatre company. Uh, called Icarus Theatre, and um, and so I'm actually calling from the GO train right now up in Toronto, headed to uh, Buddies in Bad Times Theatre, which is uh, downtown Toronto, Young and Alexander, and that's where our first show is going to be. Uh, and our first show is uh, uh, is a uh, cabaret 
of uh, new music theater. So it's called Voices of Tomorrow, uh, a cabaret for new music theater, and that's highlighting uh, new up-and-coming uh, writers for music theater and some fantastic uh, young performers. So I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to pop on and uh, and put that out there and just say a little, little hello to you and 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 update you on where I am in in my life and what have you. I appreciate it. You know, there are so many uh, theater companies that you know have struggled over the last couple of years for the obvious reasons. Um, very quickly before I do have to go, unfortunately, Liam, to the newscast. But why take that leap of faith as opposed to bring your talents to an established theater company? Why go off on your own? Well, you know, like when you're when you're when you're you know one of many 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 fishes in such a big ocean, you know, one of the great ways to uh, get yourself seen uh, is to create and produce your own work and then invite people to it. Um, and, and and as well, it's really really nice to um, be able to um, give back a little bit because I've uh, had the fortunate opportunity to work with some great companies like Tara Bruce that just done no change in the weather and was at Mervish and stuff like that. Um, but it, but it's really rewarding to see like new, new music coming up through and being able to give that platform and try to rejuvenate the, the theater scene. Like you said, after, after such a long, long um, pause per se, and it's, and it's still not quite over yet, but that's kind of the reason why I wanted to, well, why we, uh, wanted to take that uh, leap of faith, and I think that we, uh, I think that we have a good company and and two all right guys uh, running it. So, um, but yeah, so that's why I wanted to uh, to do that. Well, I appreciate the update. Congratulations on your graduation, and the very best of luck with your new endeavor with your new theater company. I have every confidence that it's going to be a big success, Liam. Thanks for this this morning. Good luck. Thank you so much, Patty. And just uh, very quickly, there Thursday. Saturday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, Buddies and Bad Times Theater, downtown Toronto, 7 o'clock. It's going to be a great show. Any Newfoundlanders listening or anybody wants to come out, would love to see you there. Thank you, Liam. Good luck. Thank you. Or break Bye. a leg, I suppose, better said. Uh, there we go. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the promises. Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey. He's in the queue. Lots to talk about with Mr. Harvey, and then lots of time for you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, in an effort to keep the government accountable, to ensure transparency, one of the critically important offices in the province is, of course, the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey. His job has become that much more difficult given a recent court ruling that is stabbed at the heart of democracy, so says, or heart the heart of transparency, so says Michael Harvey, who joins us on line number one. Good morning, Michael Harvey. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Uh, just for a, a little bit of a recount, what exactly what exactly happened in this most recent court ruling? So uh, I want to take you back to the uh, Bill Twenty Nine. Yep. Uh, so Bill Twenty Nine, uh, which was uh, that was back in twenty twelve, was this controversial law that the uh, the government of the day brought in. And uh, at that time, it had been quite frustrated with the Access to Information Act. And so it brought in a number of changes to restrict the way that the Access to Information Act worked. And one of those changes was to prevent my office from being able to review uh, legal documents in the case of an access request. 
And so that was one of these very controversial things that uh, was done at that time, and the government really wore that politically. And so in 2012, they uh, that was one of the main topics, or in 2015, they came to change it again, and that was one of the main focuses of the debate to restore that ability of my office to review legal documents. And here's here's basically the way it works, and here's why I said it it stabs at the heart of uh, of transparency. Uh, if you submit an access request for a government document, by default, you should be able to get it. But there are a number of exceptions. And these exceptions are important so that the government can work properly. So let's say the government, uh, we're talking about a cabinet document, or we're talking about uh, material that's or commercially sensitive, or we're talking about legal advice. Well, it's not a good idea to release that kind of information into the public, but how do you know whether it is legitimately that information? Uh, that's where my office comes in. Uh, you can file a complaint with my office, and you can say, can you just take a look at those documents and make sure that they are what the government is saying they are? That's what we call regulatory oversight. Now, what? Uh, so that power of my office's ability to re review legal documents was restored in 2015, and, and everything was fine for a while. But then there was a Supreme Court of Canada ruling out in Alberta that muddied the picture. It was about Alberta's law, but nevertheless, uh, the government took the position uh, after that ruling that that meant that our law no longer meant that we could review those those documents anymore, and they stopped giving them to us. And so we ended up in court, and the, the court here, the local court, found in the favor of the government. Now, I'll be appealing that ruling. Uh, I've already appealed it. And, uh, you know, I'll present some legal arguments during that appeal because I still believe that our law still says that we can review those documents. But really, there's no need of us to go to appeal uh, because the government can simply really, you know, in a matter of days, uh, go into the House and change the law and clarify it and make it clear that, that my office does have the ability to review those kind of documents. And that really means that I'll be able to do my job. If it doesn't do that, and it doesn't make clear that, um, that I ha can review those documents, and it really opens up this big hole uh, right in the middle of our act and makes it hard for me to do my job. Because it's not so long ago, uh, reviewing documents that were previously withheld, touting solicitor-client privilege, the, your examination, the office's examination, found that 80% of those documents were not actually qualified as legal advice. So uh, Ru Russell Wangerski, formerly of the Telegram, tells a story, didn't mention the party or the politician, that, you know, given us the frivolous and vexatious request for information, someone walked into the cabinet meeting, dumped a document on the table, said, there, now it's cabinet secrecy and we don't have to disclose. So it's not to say that government is playing recklessly or footloose and fancy free with everything that comes across any minister or the premier's desk, but the ultimate authority to see what qualifies as legal advice absolutely belongs in your office. They misread the political tea leaves all the time here. If that was the case, that would give the assurance that when they talk about accountability and transparency, they've actually acted on it, not just talk and, you know, and bullet points on the campaign trail. So this is a really concerning one for me because I'm in the information business too. So if they simply apply a tag of solicitor client privilege and it may not apply at all, then who knows what we're not getting a chance to see. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes or under the covers. Right. So the, the you know, Patty, the example that I use 
I wrote an op-ed in the Telegram, uh, I think last week, and the example that I used was the Rothschild reports. You know, just trying to make it tangible to, to people because everybody is interested in knowing um, knowing what's in that Rothschild report. And so Minister Cody has said, well, listen, there's some commercially sensitive information in that Rothschild report, so I can't go releasing it. And that's a very legitimate point. Like, if you're trying to sell something, you don't want to tell the people that you're trying to sell it to what you valued it at. Sure. You know, if you do that, you know you're not getting a cent more than that. Uh, and so, yes, that's very important that that information not be released. And our act provides for that. There's exceptions in the act that say that if, you know, that kind of information, if releasing it will be harmful to the economic interests of a public body, then, yeah, it doesn't have to be released. But, you know, if you submitted, Patty, if you submitted an access request for that report and then that and there was a big section blacked out or maybe the whole thing was held back and the, the department told you, yeah, it's because of that section of the act. Well, how do you know? How do you know that what's under all that black is indeed commercially sensitive? Maybe there's some other stuff in there that that you wanted to see and that you probably could see, but that you know you you just wanted someone to check and make sure. Really, is this all all of this stuff? Is that really sensitive? And that's where my office comes in. Now, the, because I can see it right here, uh, you know, the trusted parties over here in this office. Now, the key is, what if they said? Well, that's a, we got legal advice on that. That's all subject to legal advice. And so you just have to trust us. Uh, and, you know, that's where, that's where the hole opens up. If they said, well, this is all legal advice, then Harvey can't even see it. And you just have to trust us. Well, my answer to that is, yes, trust, but validate. And that's the validate part is where my office comes in. And if we can't, if that loophole is opened up for the solicitor client privilege then then you know who knows what's gone in there absolutely um there's a big win to come for them if they change their minds and amend the legislation to ensure you have the authority to compel these documents and as you and your office office has said you have no interest in releasing information that would be detrimental to government whether it be commercial sensitivities assessed value of assets or legal advice so this is not witch hunt kind of stuff this is just to ensure that government is doing what they pledge to do so i'm really confused as to why they're not leaning on this so hard and the rothschild report exactly is right on point. You know, even if it's just a release of what the recommendation was to sell or to privatize or what have you, at least we'd have a starting point for conversation. But the minister not only said that she would withhold uh, portions of the document that were commercially sensitive, she went on to say she'll she'll withhold the parts that are not. So it's pretty much we're flying blind here. And blind trust is, I don't think, something that governments deserve. You know, because we have found ourselves in a pretty tricky spot, not just in this province. This is not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador, but right across the country. Blind trust is nothing that we should be leaning on. It's certainly not very wise, whether we're talking about business and or government. So hopefully they changed their tune on this one. So what's next? You're going to appeal any timelines that you understand for this uh, court proceedings? Well, you know, we've appealed, but, but you know, the first round uh, at, the, uh, at the general division uh, of court, uh, that took, you know, years. Now, the, there was a pandemic in the middle of it, so you got to account for that. But, but, you know, appeals can take a very long time, so we could be talking years. Yeah. On the other hand, now, to be fair to the government, they, we know that the, what their legal position on this is and the position that they take in the court, but they haven't made clear what their policy decision is. And that's really what I'm, what I'm calling for, is for them to make a policy choice. Do they think that my office should have the ability to review these documents, or do they think it shouldn't? And if they think it shouldn't, 
then I, I'm calling them that, on them to, to say what that policy choice is and to stand up in the House of Assembly and to clarify the law to, to, make, sure, you know, to, to make sure that it says that. We, we don't need to leave the law ambiguous and, and let the courts uh, settle out. The, the government can take a policy choice and stand by it, and that's, that's what I'm calling for. Well, in the mention of Bill 29, you know, there was lots of controversies back in that day, but that was absolutely the beginning of the end for the PCs at the holding the seat of government. And if the Liberals can't learn from that historical lesson, then they, then I guess they'll find out the hard way. I appreciate the time this morning and the work you do, Michael. Thanks for this. Pleasure to talk to you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Michael Harvey, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Uh, you know, of course, this is... This is big stuff, right? And I know we've talked about access to some of the records and the comprehensive forensic audit at NALCOR, which is protected by a different piece of legislation regarding access to information. But seriously, you know, not just for our benefit to see what's going on and to have Mr. Harvey adjudicate what absolutely can be protected and what should be publicly disclosed, even in the political world. I really do firmly believe that the Bill 29 fiasco, even though when they reintroduced the access to information legislation that was deemed to be some of the best in Canada, that was good, but it was too late. And I think it really cost them dearly politically. So I suppose if they're not going to hear our pleas, whether it be Michael Harvey or others looking for the information, maybe their own political calculation will, you know, change some of the the stance that the government is now currently taking via ambiguous legislation and or policy. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, collab- collaborative care clinics, and then you. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. A couple of quick things first, um, and you keep talking about it. It's important for us to face it head on is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which um, requires uh, oil producing oil fields off outside uh, our exclusive economic zone to pay a royalty to uh, United Nations technically, but then to be distributed towards the poor countries that are impacted most by climate change. And if you look at the math on it, if, if you assume um, when you get out to 12 years, when it maxes out at 7%, it, it's actually at, at $100 a barrel, it would work out to be $544 million a year. At $60 barrels, it's $306 million a year. That's a lot of money. It's not, you know, it's not a rounding error. No, it's absolutely not. I think the province is uh, on the right track with the most recent commentary. You know, so Article 82 is helpful that we're allowed to extend our larger than normal continental shelf for our own purposes. But the trick is all of those hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's the same math that someone provided me, the numbers that you just used at 100 and, and at 60. But the federal government negotiated the deal. The Atlantic Accord, I wonder which will trump which, you know, whether it be that UN Law of the Sea and or the Atlantic Accord, which is very clear in the province being the beneficiary of the offshore royalty. So, you know, it's going to be a real test for that particular piece of negotiated paper. And, I, you know, they've got five years to figure it out. So it's not like it's, the, uh, it's going to happen today or tomorrow. But it is a big conversation. I guess there's going to be some sort of compromise, you know, a sharing of that amount of money to be funneled into the UN based on an agreement that the country is signed on to, but who knows where it lands. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it, the important part for uh, Equinor will be whether or not it's going to fall on their shoulders, because obviously that affects the, uh, if they still got to pay Newfoundland to generic royalty and also be on the hook for this, then that also changes the, the numbers a lot for them. So, I mean, you, you got to figure that from a taxpayer point of view, um, if I'm in Ontario or Alberta or wherever else, I mean, I, I'm not okay with having to put out $500 million a year 
and Equinor not pay for it. So it, again, becomes a subsidy to the oil industry if Equinor doesn't have to pay for it. But if Equinor has to pay for it, then obviously that impacts their the numbers on their development. So Yeah, their numbers currently, they say that their break-even is at $35 a barrel, but I don't know if the sanctioning decision becomes that much more complicated if all of a sudden they're involved in this royalty payout, but I don't even know how the conversation proceeds at this point, to be honest. No, but fortunately it's above our pay grade, Yep, which is good to talk about. Um, Quickly on natural gas, Um, natural gas is viewed as, as a cleaner alternative. However, there's been a lot of research recently done demonstrating that uh, that leakage of nat- natural gas, both in its production, transportation, storage, and and consumption, is actually a lot higher than people estimated. And if there's only a one percent leakage of natural gas, because methane is between 80 and 90 times more impactful for climate warming than uh, CO2, and that ba- natural gas is basically methane, so anything that leaks goes right into the atmosphere. Um, if there's a one percent leakage of natural gas the impact on the climate is the same as coal. So anything over and above that, and, you know, would actually make, if it's 1.5% leakage, it's actually twice as bad as coal. And down the Permian Basin, which is the American uh, Southwest, they estimate there's about a 3.7% leakage. So, so again, one, just a little bit of information for people. Everything is so complicated. But Yeah, the largest offshore liquefying platform, Shell owns, and they and the reports and the evaluation done of their processes is very, very clean. And, the, you know, they're audited quite clearly. And they do it themselves, of course, because they want to be remain as an attractive option for shareholders and access to capital. So I guess it depends on the regulatory issues where you operate and the company's commitment, because it can be done very safely if they pay attention to it. Right, and, and the production, just like we talk about production offshore, you know, Newfoundland, that might be 15, 18% of the uh, greenhouse gases. But then once it gets starts getting transported and put into and then transferred and then combusted and leakage in buildings, leakage in pipelines and all that stuff. So, so again, something we need to put a pressure on is, is to measure that because obviously it's self-monitoring right now uh, in most cases. So we need to measure it and then put pressure on the uh, industry to uh, reduce the leakage. Okay, over to the collaborative care clinics, and you know, I've been, I've been kind of, uh, you know, listening and trying to absorb as much as as we can. And, and if, you know, basically what we're talking about is moving from a private model to a public model where our doctors and nurse practitioners are government employees, and and with that obviously comes um, all the benefits of being a government employee. For example, holidays, which I'm sure a lot of doctors wish they could get, they struggle to get. Uh, locums and people to come cover for them and and then of course they would also be able to have sick leave which which again i'm sure is a benefit that a lot of doctors would love to have um they obviously then also government holidays benefits and pensions and and with with pension um that would result most likely in doctors retiring at a younger age so so all these things factor into the productivity over the lifetime of a doctor and and I, I look at this directly. Melissa Kosh was on yesterday with Linda, and uh, she, she was saying that basically uh, four nurses and three full-time equivalent family physicians is, is what staffs one of these collaborative care clinics, and they see 7,500 patients, so that's around 1,071 patients per professional, when the typical model in a general practitioner's office is around 2,000 patients per professional. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting when we're looking at trying to I guess do more with less. It seems like again we're we may be doing less with less, but 
or less with the same amount. And, and, and that's not, to, I mean, I think these clinics are important, and I think obviously the professionals are struggling. So uh, just trying to put some perspective out there. The collaborative care clinic is not new elsewhere. It's just new to us. I think that's some of the concern that people have is a bit of the unknown, but the absolutely legitimate concern, whether it be from the college or the NLMA, is if we are talking about the presence of family doctors in these clinics, if they simply left their own clinic to join a clinic and didn't bring their patient roster with them, then we haven't exactly brought forward the panacea that the government refers to as the collaborative clinic. Now, it could absolutely work when you walk in the door and you're from your point of uh, contact initially will be a doctor or nurse practitioner but inside those same doors uh, family doctors nurse practitioners you might have access to a social worker or a pharmacist a registered nurse so it does make sense we just need to ensure that the staffing levels is simply not shuffling people around as opposed to bringing new people into the system i think they're i think they're destined to work i really do i mean i think it's an excellent concept it just comes down to um back on to us as 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 uh, taxpayers and as residents, we really need to realize that, you know, we need to look after our own health too. And we're part of that process. And I love the focus we've had over the last week or so that you've been speaking about pea soup. And yesterday you had a gentleman on, a chef on. And and I th- really think we've got to put that back on ourselves a little bit. I mean, once obviously you're, you're, you have chronic disease, it's very, it becomes more challenging, but prevention and and looking at me because there's no there's no magic solution because because even if we were to have more GPs magically well GPs are the gatekeepers they're the ones then who order tests they're the ones who then refer you to specialists and then that that spreads out from there so now all of a sudden if if we could magically fix the GP problem then we have another challenge in that now we've got to have more testing capacity we have to have more specialists we have to have more treatment and so ultimately this all comes back to prevention 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 sure but I mean I'm I'll take I'll take that bit about all those referrals increasing access and capacity inside healthcare. Doctors themselves will tell you that we overprescribe pharmaceuticals and we overprescribe diagnostic tests. We just do. Now nobody wants to hear that because just imagine being the doctor and have to look a family in the face and say, "No, I'm not going to get that PET scan because it's not going to mean a row of beans to the treatment and the survivability of whatever ailment your grandfather has." And so we order it. Same thing with the prescribing of drugs, starting with antibiotics. The doctors will tell you, we're just putting too many pens to pads, ordering both of those things, drugs and tests. So the onus is on the doctors to control as the gatekeeper. So I don't think we necessarily have to have more tests, not only prevention for a healthier population, but doctors just need to prescribe what's actually 100% needed and has a chance to help with your long-term health as opposed to doing it as a as a feel-good, as a capitulation. And doctors have told me this to a man and to a woman that there's an issue here. So anyway, I'll let you have the last word, Tom, before I take off. Well, along those lines, if in the collaborative care situation that the prescription is to go see the, uh, nu- you know, nutri- get some nutrition advice or get some some uh, addiction advice, and that happens always in that, ca- that, to your point, that then can be really what we need to do in a lot of cases as opposed to the script or the test. So anyone, everyone say thank you, Patty. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. You too, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Uh, Good morning, Verna. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. All in regards to the votes again. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Well, as you're aware, a 
couple of weeks ago, we had the Legionnaire down because we didn't have engineers. Uh, now the Flanders has gone to the harbor because we don't have enough crew due to apparently COVID. So they don't have crew to put on for the people that are off because they have COVID. Uh, number three is they introduced this 511 system that gives you information on the boat situation, the ferry situations, uh, the road situations, uh, plows, what roads are closed off. That was introduced, that was put out there as of the first of the week, first, the first of last week. And it was just put out there. People that don't have cell phones or don't use computers, it's not a user-friendly system. It's NL511. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. Mm-hmm, I am. It, it was supposed to be introduced years ago, and it still has a lot of quirks in it, lots of, lots of uh, things that have to be refined in it. So uh, this is what we have to depend on now. So our communication is going to be with... The transportation infrastructure is through 511. Again, if communication is not there now, how is it going to be in the 511? We hope it's going to be better. But last night, a ferry went down, and the update was one to five. Uh, it was going to be down for one hour up to three days. Uh, I don't know how people in anywhere else in Newfoundland would like it if. They said that you can't go anywhere and your your road is down from one day, one hour to five, three days. I don't think people would take nicely to it. The people were coming home from work last night. It was to do with the ramp. So they weren't getting home from Portugal Cove. And it was that was all your information you got. And uh, I see that the... Uh, the director for the operations of the ferry, they have uh, put out for a person for that. Now, I'm aware that one person in particular that had uh, applied for it, Aaron, um, he got notification. He did not receive the position. He is well qualified in the Marine exper- and experienced with Marine. I'm just hoping that whoever they do hire, it's not a friend of a friend from an airport or elsewhere put in that position that are set up to fail the people of Newfoundland in the ferry service because we need experience, we need qualifications, and we desperately need it now in regards to operating these boats, in regards to maintenance, communications, in regards to crewing, uh, scheduling, any problems. We have to have experienced people that are able to do this job, not continue with we don't know, we can't do, and we don't know how. We need the experience of Marine and qualifications of Marine. And I hope it comes out that way. Yeah, you don't need to be any sort of expert in the ferry service to offer uh, decent communication. You know, so if it's going to be down, now in fairness, for instance, if a road is washed out, we get an undetermined uh, restoration time frame offered all the time. It's never down to the hour or the, the morning or the afternoon of one day or another when everything's going to be settled and done. So that, that, that does happen, you know, when we see, because I think it's akin to a road washout. 
out because if you can't pass, the same thing as the ferry's not going to be there. You can't cross. So that's that. The information that we always hear about the the qualifications in the leadership in the ferry service is absolutely of concern, and I don't know why we wouldn't do our best to ensure that folks making decisions, whether it be on retrofits or, or anything else, that would understand the system itself and understand the vessels themselves. So I, I get that point that Mike makes and you make uh, repeatedly on the show, so fair enough. Yeah, and I guess I, in regards to I'm, I'm following this, and I will definitely let you know when I do find out who received the position, why they received the position, and exactly what qualification and who they are. Absolutely. I'd be happy to and, know, you know, be informed. People need to know because there's too many in there that uh, I can check myself and find their qualifications and what they have and why they're, and I'm wondering as just an individual with no qualifications to why they're in there and why would somebody put them in there. Always fair questions, Vernon. No dispute here. Yeah. And like I say, and when you ask the questions, there's no accountability. No answers required. And it's and no matter where you go or how you go, it gets it goes so far, and then it gets shut off. Like whether it be the TV, the like uh, me talking to you now. Not that you have control over Patty. No, I do not. <laughs> and but it just goes so far and stops. Like when we had questions and we looked for questions uh, for answers to these questions, it was. They would leave us go so far, and then, but when, when it come time for them to speak, it was the whole segment of their side of it. But then when it came to our side of it, we got that tiny little space there, and they got them three words they wanted to hear come out of our mouths, whether it be all together or not, and then they shut us off. And it's sad, but it's true, and I'm not saying, you know, it hasn't been done with other parties or in regards to other events, but it's sad that, you know, the people, it's here it is, come home here, and if we don't get things fixed, you got no worries about them coming over to Belle Island because now the Beaumont is back, and guess where that's at? In the harbor for refit. The ferry system is never going to be perfect, and mechanical issues and weather are going to be part of it. You know, I think there are two different conversations regarding how the system is managed at the administrative level versus weather and mechanical issues. Yeah, but 25 years we've moved here from Port McMurray, and in 25 years it's been so dilapidated, and it's not because we don't have new ferries, because we do, and it's not because we don't have the proper people to work on them because we do it's because of i don't know if it's neglect or being passive and passing things off and and being not being productive at the times that it should be i don't know what it is but it seems like the work ethics or the work work structure is not what it used to be years ago Appreciate the time this morning, Vernon. Thanks Thank for the call. You. you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so plenty of talk about health care. Most of it about the provincial government's role in it, the regional health authorities, the minister responsible. We don't hear a lot. Now, we did indeed speak with one of the candidates to be the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, Jean Charest, talking about some health care conversations, you know, national standards, national accreditations, what have you. And we know there are shortages and issues right across this province. Coming up after the break is the Conservative member of Parliament uh, elected in Costa Bay Central Notre Dame. Of course, that's Clifford Small. He wants to talk about it. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number five is the Conservative Member of Parliament elected in and serving the folks of Costa Bay Central Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. 
Morning, Patty. How are you? Doing fine this morning. Thanks for asking. How about you? Wonderful. Doing well. Um, yeah, I just heard you mention the, the gatekeepers when you were talking to uh, Tom. Uh, seems like you might be tearing a page out of uh, Pierre Polyev's book. <laughs> How so? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, I do want to get to your support of Mr. Poliev, but I think you want to talk about healthcare first. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Just starting off a little bit light here on a, on a very serious topic. Uh, in Costa Bay, Central Notre Dame, we've got, uh, you know, in Costa Bay, Spaver Peninsula, Fogo Island, Buckins. Uh, basically now, uh, most of these communities are going to be without without uh, doctors, and they're they're heavily industrialized area, you know, in Costa Bays with their aquaculture industry, a couple of fish plants there, Gaver Peninsula, a couple of mines with their mills, and Fogo Island, three fish plants, Balkans with a, an expanding mining industry. Uh, it's it's getting to be a crisis. It's a, basically a medical disaster, you know, most of these places are, are dealing with right now. And... Uh, and I'm, 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 I don't, I don't pretend to know everything about healthcare and and uh, and you know the intricacies. But what I'm calling you about is we need a short-term solution over the next several months. I've been talking to mayors and councillors and and people in all these communities, and they're they're really stressed out about the situation that they have uh, that that that's evolved here, and. Uh, I, I, you know, this is not the Medicare system that Tommy Douglas had in mind. And, you know, Bernie Sanders' campaign in the United States about bringing Medicare to the United States, it's not the Medicare that's in Fogo Island or St. Albans or or Harbor Breton uh, and Buckins, Paper and Lassie and all the communities associated. Um, so I, I'm not here to, uh, to berate anybody. What what I'm here to do is today to ask the provincial government to call in the the military for some help. You know, uh, they've got medics and doctors. They could spare a few around in these different areas to help us out uh, over the next uh, over the next few months until until they have more permanent solutions in place. And the reason I say it is because in Snowmageddon, the military came in and shoveled outdoors in 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 St. John's and Mount Pearl and all over the Avalon. And on, when we had the flooding on the West Coast, the military came in to help out and build bridges. And, and then Ontario and Quebec, when COVID started, military went into seniors' homes to help out there. So I don't see where our situation in Coastal Bays is any different. If you, your previous caller was talking about the ferry in uh, Bell Island. Well, Fogo Island, absolutely no different. There are many, many days that Fogo Island is without ferry service. Yep. And and to 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 say to be excited about bringing in one doctor, you know, if you gave all these places one doctor, what's that going to do? Costa Bays used to have 15 doctors. Baver Peninsula had six. Fogo had two. Balkans had two. Bringing in one doctor is going to do nothing. We need it. We need uh, we need some teams to to come in now from the military. And help out now. I can't call them in, but I. This idea came to my head over the weekend, and I. I think it's. I think it's something that, that the provincial government can do. Possibly. I mean, I've heard that suggested in the past is that the military can play a role, and I know that there's absolutely doctors that are members of the military. There's 
obviously a difference between the uh, military team of engineers doing some of those transportation-related matters versus the distribution of their healthcare professionals, but I don't even know if that's been entertained at the highest levels. I have no earthly idea. And is it manageable? Again, I don't know, but we'd have to have the conversation to find out if it's not. Why not? So I, I get that. But I, sometimes I get your perspective on this. Look, I hear from these people, individuals, all the time, and municipal leaders all the time about these doctor-related matters. Do we sometimes oversimplify the fact that, you know, we had X number of doctors, now we don't have any doctors? The ability to recruit a doctor is becoming more competitive than ever before, certainly as long as uh, I've been an adult and, and working in this in the media, for instance. I just think that we sometimes say, well, all we need to do is for the province to get us a doctor. Some doctors might not be that attracted to some isolated, smaller regions of the country, let alone the province. So what do you, what do you think of that? Because it's easy enough to say, I need a doctor in Buckins. Quite another get a doctor to want to move to Buckins. No disrespect to Buckins, lovely community. So do we sometimes oversimplify a very complicated matter? Um, maybe we oversimplify it. But on the Bayver Peninsula, we had two great doctors and when the clinic in Lassie uh, was shut down, the doctor from Lassie moved to Bayvert. Now, these two fine gentlemen left at the same time and went to a Callaway. So uh, maybe, maybe Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we, we, need, we need to be uh, uh, looked at in the same light. Sure. It's important to know why the doctors leave. Is what We don't do a great job of that. An exit interview you think would be paramount, whether it be location or amenities or cost of travel or relationship with the regional health authority or nothing for their partner or their children, whatever it is, those if we know it, then we can do something to address it. And I hope for the obvious reasons, for our, our fellow brothers and sisters in this province, regardless of what community they're in, access to health care is probably the number one concern this day and age. Now, we can add in cost of living and all those other matters, but access to health care is a critical issue that we're trying to talk our way through, and there does need to be more action, of course. There's no doubt about that. Uh, did, you, did you have anything else to say about doctor shortages before we uh, eat the last couple of minutes with some federal issues? No, that's, that, that's fine. Um, you know, I just wanted to make that suggestion. Sure. We're in such a crisis, crisis right now and lives are being lost. Uh, this, this is as critical as shoveling out someone's door that's got six feet of snow in front of it in case they have an emergency inside their home. So we're, we're actually, we've actually had situations where people have died and, and, and things that could have been prevented we need we and, and sending one is no good because what happens? There's one doctor, they get burnt out and they leave, and you got this revolving door. They need teams. They need to be these these hospitals need to be treated uh, in, in a way that whereby they bring in a team. They need a team of professionals to come in there so we can stop this revolving door. Which and is what so they're trying to do support. with the collaborative care clinic. Now I don't know about the military issue, whether or not that has merit or not, but it's worth a, it's worth a conversation, no doubt about it. And I that can was do my main reason for calling uh okay. and, and I'm not trying to step into provincial jurisdiction or shit on anybody. I want to help. I want to come out with a, with something that could be a solution to take the strain off. And what's going to happen is Grand Falls Windsor Hospital, Gander Hospital, they're, they're, it, the system's going to collapse in central in central Newfoundland because right now you're going to have 15,000 in our population that are going to be without a family doctor, in fact. And that's being piled onto two big hospitals in central. 
and it's going to collapse the whole system. We need help now in the rural areas to take the strain off the hospitals in Central. Understood. So I hope someone listens to what I'm saying, and I hope that they, I hope they can swallow their pride and go and ask the federal government to come in and help us. Yeah, and I'll, I'll follow up on that a little bit because I'm not really sure what to even make of it, whether it's manageable, realistic or not, but I will follow up because we have to chase everything at this moment in time. Uh, before we run they out of time. No problem, they had okay. no problem sending the military into the seniors' homes in Quebec and Ontario in COVID. So there's personnel somewhere that we can get, and that's that's all I've got to say on it. Yeah, but they uh, weren't sending – everyone that a member of the military in Quebec or Ontario, they weren't all doctors. They were just members of the military, and there was lots of logistical things they were doing versus offering treatments to people. Okay, so th- that's that, and I will follow it. Uh, given your full-throated support of Mr. Poliev to be the next permanent leader of the party, in the recent past, a couple of declarations regarding policy that I'm not really sure what to make of, to be honest with you. Number one being the fact that Mr. Poliev has declared that the Bank of Canada is fiscally, financially, monetarily illiterate. Sometimes the tearing down of institutions is easy pickings because people are looking at their pocketbooks and saying, well, something's gone wrong with inflation cost of living. But do you agree that the Bank of Canada is illiterate? I'll tell you now. I'll tell you why I'm with with Bilyev. No, but just answer that question before you give us the broad strokes of your support. Um, I'm not going to get into uh, his uh, his his policy regarding the, the Bank of Canada. That's not my expertise, and my main reasons for for supporting Mr. Bilyev is that. He supports initiatives that we need. You know, he called me up a month ago and he said, Cliff, I want to come to Newfoundland and shoot some seals. I said, yes, Pierre, come on down. You shoot them, I'll skin them. But, you know, he understands that we've got an ecological disaster in our oceans. He understands that we need to do something about our seal overpopulation, bring back seal harvest, so that we can we can restore balance and, and have a productive ocean again and, and bring our billion and a half, two dollar Two billion dollar fishery up to five billion. Like we're we're so far with the lo- with the longest coastline in the world. Uh, Norway is uh, two and a half times, three times more productive with their ocean than we are, and their GDP contributed from the fishery. So I didn't and even know that to be the case. Our oil industry. Well. Okay, and of course the last approval was what everyone was worried about, but I didn't even know that Mr. Poliev was talking about, so are you saying that he would promote a call for call's sake as opposed to increase no. markets or access? No, so no, no, what's no, he no. suggesting regarding seals? No, 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 no. Neither him or I would support a call. That's just a... So what's he suggesting that's then? A waste. That's a waste of, of resources to support a call. Oh, we need we need that we need access to we need access to markets worldwide. We we need we need a federal government that actually that actually cares and is willing to work on getting markets uh, reopened and and to help with product development. We I mean we've got we've got part of a solution to us to you know eight uh, eight hundred million starving people. If we we can be part of the solution. We just need the will, and uh, and Mr. Puliev represents that will to me. In fact, you know, at least to me, and to and to a lot of other people that I'm talking to, and uh, and you know, in terms of our oil industry, he gets it. And carbon tax, that's another biggie in terms of my support for Mr. Puliev because Newfoundland and Labrador is very remote. Now, the governor of the Bank of Canada recently said that carbon tax. Is, represents 0.4% of the inflation that we have right now. 
Now, that's an average for all of Canada. So, so in some places, carbon tax might only mean 0.1%. But in Newfoundland and Labrador, carbon tax could be 2 3% of our inflation. How's that? So far away. How can that possibly 4% be? 4% is a blended average for the whole country. You know, the logistics, everything's got to be shipped in. But the carbon tax in this province is 11 cents per litre. Exactly. And that's but it, it's what? Fuel that's purchased uh, by trucks, by truckers? It, that's all passed down to the consumer. Yeah, there's a different regime uh, regarding the two different fuels, and certainly where you purchase it, it also has to be factored in here. Um, last one, because this is something I also find quite curious, is talking about monetary policy, talking about using cryptocurrency, which I admit, I don't know a whole lot about, to be honest with you, using cryptocurrency as a way to opt out of inflation, which I don't even know what that means, given Bitcoin or cryptocurrency has been more volatile than gasoline and other commodities over the last two years. Do you know anything about his position on cryptocurrency being part of our actual legal tender? Well, why not? Why not? Why not Why not have it as legal tender? Well, it's not backed by anything, uh, for one. But for, but from my, my perspective, if I had money to invest, I'd be invested in gold. Because, <laughs> of course, Central Newfoundland is going to be the, the gold epicenter of Canada. But, uh, um, you know, it... Why, why can't we? Why can't we come up with new ideas, change, and progress? And if if that's the way things are going to go, why not be on the leading edge of it? Oh, for individuals, you know, whatever you invest in is up to an individual. But making something legal tender that's backed by nothing seems like a pretty tricky road to go down, from my estimation. Like investing your own personal monies in gold or cryptocurrency or whatever. Absolutely, people can do a hundred percent what they see fit with their own hard-earned money. But for national currency, I'm just not really sure what he actually means by opting out of inflation, given the volatility of the currency itself, the crypto. So I was just curious if you know more about it than I do. Because, And Mr. Paul has been on the show, and he's welcome to come back on to elaborate on some of these things, because that's big stuff. That's big, important policies that we're talking about that can have long-term implications for whether it be inflation, which, again, is a global issue at this moment in time. Huh? And some people are loath to admit that, but there's a lot of complicating factors as to why inflation is at a 31-year high, 6.7%, absolutely a problem. Absolutely has to be attention given to it. And uh, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all for a solution. I appreciate the time this morning. And I will chase the the potential for military intervention to deal with some of the doctor shortages. I don't really know where to start with it, but I will give it some more thought, and I'll chase it around. Uh, Clifford, appreciate your time. Wish you good luck. Thank you, Patty, and thanks for the opportunity to come on your show. My pleasure. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Clifford Small is the MP for Costa Bay Central Notre Dame. Time for the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to retired Captain George Ford. He's the VP of the Navy League of Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Division. Good morning, Captain. You're on the air. How are you, Mr. Daly? Couldn't be better this morning. How about you? I'm fine, thank you, sir. I'd just like to highlight a couple of things, if I may. Um, we have we have uh, some some great cadet programs here in Canada, specifically in the Navy League of Canada cadets and the Royal Canadian Sea Cadets, and uh, uh, two Sea Cadets, uh, two pardon me, cadets on, in the province. One from Pilly's Island 
The Chief Cadet uh, Petty Officer First Class Laura Callahan has been named Newfoundland Labrador's Top Royal Canadian Sea Cadet. That's for uh, youth age 12 to 18. And Petty Officer Cadet Thea Lewis from Tor Bay is, uh, has been named as a Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Top Navy League Cadet. Both of those cadets will now uh, compete to, uh, to become uh, the top cadets in the country. So I, I, I think this is, a, this is a fantastic opportunity that, to, to highlight a movement out there that perhaps is not as well known as it should be. 100%. Can you tell us a little bit about what made these uh, two candidates vie for some of these leadership uh, awards? What, what, what did they do inside the Navy League to put them in such high esteem? The Navy League of Canada sponsors both the Navy League Cadet Corps and the Royal Canadian Sea Cadets. The age difference, Sea Cadets are from 12 to 18, Navy League Cadets uh, from age 9 to 13. So, Thea Lewis, she's 11 years old and has been, na- has been, has been called a pillar of her community by her, her teachers. She is, um, she, this girl is a high achiever. Uh, community involvement. She started um, a band in her school, uh, which which performed concerts in in her neighborhood, raised m- money for um, for the Jane Way. Uh, she she participates in all sorts of other charities. Uh, she is um, very proud of her Mi'kmaq heritage. Uh, she she's out there. Uh, she's participating, and and really a kid who who whose community is proud of them. Imagine 11 years old and being called a pillar of the community. Uh, Chief, uh, Cadet Chief Petty Officer, pardon me, First Class Laura Callahan. Um, she is, uh, again, what, what made her stand out was her, her involvement in her school and the community. So they, they, uh, they are, are fantastic examples of, of, of how much... Uh, how much how many youth out there are truly uh involved not only in the movement over helping their neighbors as well terrific stuff and congratulations to both and forgive my ignorance uh, captain ford but what exactly goes on inside the navy league of canada what sort of programs do you offer to the country's youth Navy League of Canada was started in 1895 to promote an interest in maritime affairs and has since graduated uh, to, to promote, to organize, uh, sponsor, support, encourage the education and the training of the youth of the, the country through both the Royal Canadian Sea Cadets and the Navy League. Um, we, we're one of three. There is a, a, an Army leg as well. And an Air Force. So you have you. So for between the Sea Cadets, the Army Cadets, and the Air Cadets across the country, you have fifty-eight thousand youth. And as you know, sir, Newfoundland and Labrador has a, a long history of, of youth organizations like the Catholic Cadets, the Methodist Guards, the Church Lads Brigade, the OYB. But it wasn't until the Cadets showed up here in 1949 that the first secular youth movement that involved Catholics and Protestants, boys and, and girls existed. These, the, the, the organizations are free. Uh, they, everything is provided. For instance, sea cadets can learn to dive. Air cadets can learn to fly. Army, in the Army, they jump out of airplanes. 
all these kids have opportunities for travel. It's it's a it's a fantastic organization. We from the from the naval perspective, we have 28 Sea Cadet Corps across across the province. Pardon me, and five uh, Navy League Cadet Corps, and and often they are the pride of their towns. It's great stuff. Does do many of the cadets see a future in active military? Uh, because you know we've heard from the Canadian Forces that they're having a devil of a time recruiting. The numbers are way down. They're short some sixty five thousand uh, members, if I remember the story correctly. So, do you ever talk about the long term career aspirations of some of the cadets to be active military? So here's some stats for you, sir. Sixty seven percent. Of all chief executive officers in the country have attended RMC in the military. Uh, Out of all of those cadets at the Royal Military College of Canada, most of them were cadets. So uh, there you are. Now, out of all the cadets in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, just like across the country, Maybe some will move on into the forces. However, most end up being nurses, mm-hmm. doctors, or teachers. It isn't about recruiting for the forces. It's about uh, producing and helping foster youth citizenship, leadership, physical fitness, and um, an opportunity to to help out in their communities. Always good when we approach a solid base of character with the country's youth. So this sounds, and I'm glad I asked the question about, you know, some of the programs and what the outcomes might be for their long-term careers, what they, where they end up. And sort of course, being a pillar of your community at the tender age, I think you said of 11 years, is really uh, quite the declaration. I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. Captain, anything else you'd like to say? That's all. We're out there. We need uh, more cadets and... Um, Um, look us up navyleague.ca good talking to you this morning Captain Ford thank you sir and you sir have a good day you too bye bye that's retired Captain George Ford he's the VP of the Navy League of Canada Newfoundland and Labrador Division let's take a break when we go back Mary's in the queue she wants to talk about the new approach to healthcare that the collaborative care clinics don't go away welcome back Uh, let's go to line number four and you're on the air I'm going to bring up something that Nobody has mentioned so far. Uh, I'm wondering with this man, Mr. Dion, I'm hoping that the reason he's been turned down for this new drug or whatever for the COVID, I'm hoping it's not because of his age and the uh, uh, shortness of the supply. I think, uh, I hope that hasn't factored into it. Nobody's mentioned that so far. Well, I don't know how we would get to the bottom of that, but if you read the current guidelines, which are different in this province than they are, say, for instance, in Ontario, where 70-plus can get it, regardless of your vaccination status, but not so much with this uh, this province and our policies here. So if we just take the policy at face value and apply Mr. Dion's reality to it, he doesn't qualify, but that doesn't mean that the policy makes any sense. Well, like I said, I... I, I just don't want his age oh. to have factored into... 100%. He's 100 years old. That shouldn't factor in at all. Yeah, of course not. that's right. 
and uh, I'm, I'm just concerned about that. And I, I would like to get some more feedback as to what uh, other people might think. Anyway, that's all I've got to say. Fair enough, Anne. I hadn't really thought that it could be such a dastardly decision, you know, based mm-hmm. on the man's age, because, you know, if uh, his family can get 102 out of him, they'd prefer that, right? Oh, so, well, absolutely. Which is really why I... Absolutely. And that's another and reason why I... do it. He's entitled to that drug the same as you or I. Well, I wouldn't qualify for it either. Well, I would. Let's put it that way. Okay. I appreciate the time, Anne. Thank you. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. And that's another thing that I really find quite distasteful, is that every time that the death toll is reported and they give the ages... That, you know, people just lean on the fact, well, you know, oh, what do you know, someone who's all died. Man, that's just so callous, right? Like if you had uh, your dad or your grandfather, grandmother, mother, and they, as a result of contracting COVID and the complications because of it, die in their 80, wouldn't it have been better for that family if the person lived to be 90 or, or whatever the case would be? I just find that to be so cold is to say, well, they were old. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm going to get to grow old, and if there's something out there that can keep me going legitimately, whether it be protection from a virus and or Paxlovid or whatever else, then I would hope that I'd be able to get it. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Um, I'm just calling about the, the um, what do they call it, collaborative health care uh, team. And I just, um, I think that's just in St. John's, I think, eh? At this moment, they're talking about setting them up around the province, so yeah. Okay, so the the thing that I'm not in I'm not in St. John, so I won't be able to avail of it right now. But I sit here and I think about how is it going to work, um, like say in terms of um, like you'd still have to go into the doctor like to get a diagnosis. Well, if you go to a collaborative clinic, and there's three established right now in the city, they're talking about plans across the province, which has to happen, of course. Your primary point of contact will be the doctor or the nurse practitioner. But also inside of these collaborative care clinics will be a bunch of different uh, healthcare professionals. You might have an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist, a social worker, a pharmacist, dietitian, registered nurse, LPN. So yeah, you'll, you'll go to the clinic, and if you need referral type services that can only be done by the doctor, then you'll have to see the doctor. If you just need an update of your prescription for X, Y, or Z, maybe the nurse practitioner is all you need to see that day. So that's the concept behind it, is that there will be so many different professionals working in the same building and not every time that we go to our family doctor did we actually need to see a family doctor many times we could have seen another professional and to take away some of the burden on the system that's the concept oh yeah yeah like that and and that's and that's really awesome i was just thinking of it in terms of yeah like like what you're saying you'd still have to go it's not really taking away the doctor's time in the sense that you still have to go to get the diagnosis and in terms of anybody who has like health insurance uh, the health insurance is going to have to have like the referral, so it, you know they're, it's going to have to be from a doctor. I don't know if they will accept it like um, from a nurse practitioner. I, I think they will because if you have the professional training and accreditation to do what have you, renew a prescription, refer someone on to a diagnostic test, if the healthcare professional is actually given that authority, then I don't know how the insurance company could turn it down because they're they're experts in insurance, not in healthcare. Yeah, so just, you know, well, you know, with insurance now, how how everything works, <laughs> like, it's like uh, like pulling uh, pulling teeth, right? It can be. So, 
Yeah, so that's just kind of, I was wondering how, how that worked in terms of saving the doctor's time, because you still had to go to see him to get the diagnosis, and then for the insurance, you have to get the referral, so then you're, you know, having to get that, well, I suppose you can do all that same appointment, but all the rest of it, I think, is just, uh, is just awesome, you know, I mean, well, even now, like, uh, if you have, if you go in, you got something wrong with your soft tissue, okay, doctor says you got something wrong with your soft tissue, then he gives you referral, you go to physiotherapy, so that's the doctor that heals you from that is the physiotherapist so that's uh, so that's uh, wonderful you know that uh, that you can go to uh, like this collaborative health care team and then once you got all your referral and diagnosis then you just go in and see physiotherapist yeah yeah i mean it, it the concept really does make a lot of sense to me the complicating factor at this moment in time is as to whether or not the healthcare professionals working in the collaborative care clinics are new to the system or simply coming from somewhere else. So the thought that maybe a doctor has closed their clinic in Mount Pearl and they were seeing 3,000 patients and weren't able to bring them with them to the new collaborative care clinic, then all of a sudden we just had a doctor working there is now working here so who's not new to the system. So it's not ideal at this moment of time with some of the staffing shortages, but if they can settle staffing shortages, the care clinics are going to work. As far as I can tell, and what I see in other jurisdictions, the concept makes all the sense in the world, but you have to have the staff, of course, because without staff, it's just bricks and mortar. And do they have a lot of um, nurse practitioners in the province? Or is there a shortage of them as well? I don't think there's a shortage of them, to be honest. Uh, we've spoken to the uh, president of their association, and I can't remember any mention of a shortage. And they are expanding seats at M- Mons Med School, or pardon me, Mons Nursing School, and at CNA. And there's going to absolutely be a focus on LPNs and NPs, because if we're going to lean on them more and more, then we have to have them. And many people here would be interested in, pr- uh, in pursuing those types of careers. So I'll get a follow-up on numbers where we are and how how many we think we need because we have those numbers as it pertains to MDs but I'm not so sure I've seen them straight up with nurse practitioners but I can find out no problem yeah because they see that would be awesome if we if we had uh, like all those nurse practitioners a lot of them and and you know if, if the uh, insurance will will accept uh, a diagnosis from from them you know that would be really really helpful if that's how it all turned out. Yeah, uh, so both. I can get answers, uh, distinct answers to both. The numbers of nurse practitioners and how many we think we need and referrals as it relates to insurance. I can get those answers, no problem. Okay. Appreciate the time, Mary. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Uh, interestingly, Nancy's in the queue. She wants to talk about nurse practitioners. Wayne's there talking about the whole concept of regionalization, which is controversial uh, in some corners. We'll hear Wayne's thoughts right after the news. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Oh, hi there. Um, It's my first time calling, and I'm not sure if uh, this has come up before because I don't have uh, a lot of time to listen to you um, daily. Um, So I'm 45 years old, moved from Ontario uh, five years ago. Um, Now, talking about this whole thing with the nurse practitioners not being able to bill MCP, I guess that's something that they're working on doing, is it? 
Well, at this moment in time, the province is not moving in that direction. But the question is, why not? If we're talking yeah. about uh, taking the burden away from the system and allowing people to go see a nurse practitioner, fee for service, for some people, that's just not the answer. Yeah. So, you know, if they're going to be part of the system, the inability to bill is the big question. But at this moment in time, it doesn't sound like the province is moving that way. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like, I moved five years ago, and nurse practitioners out there have been billing their, um, like, their health care for much longer than that. And that was now the clinic that I went to with my doctor was sort of like one of these collaborative clinics where there was, you know, a sociologist and different things. They may not have had a physiotherapist in there, but they had different specialties and different groups. Obviously, if your doctor was off or fully booked, you could see another doctor and x-ray services. And that's another thing, too, that's totally different out here that I wasn't expecting before I came out was out there. There's private radiology clinics, private blood labs, um, things like that, but they bill directly to the healthcare. Um, now, that would definitely solve a lot of backlog in a lot of the services, ultrasounds, x-rays, CT, well, not CT scans, but, um, you know, a lot of their things out there are privately owned, the hospitals and everything, so that's a bit different out there as well. Um, but I, could, I just could not believe, now it's only been the last, say, year or so that I've been kind of paying attention and noticing that the nurse practitioners are not being um, and they're not able to bill, and that just seems to me like a ridiculous option. Right. Now, if you see a nurse practitioner at the hospital, for instance, that service gets covered just like everything else. It's the inability to bill if they establish their own private independent contractor clinic. So right. when they're part of the, the normal churn inside the RHA, then, of course, it's covered like everything else. But mm. it's the private established clinic that is... I don't know why government thinks that it's a good idea for it simply to be fee-for-service because that one person who says, I don't have the money, they're going to go right back to the system that they're used to, and so consequently we haven't taken very many people out of the overwhelmed system. Now, like for instance, if I needed to see a nurse practitioner today, I'd pay the 30 bucks, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it's available to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I get your concern, and it's a question being asked repeatedly of the government. Yes. Yeah, and then um, another thing that I um, that I wanted to bring up was the fact that again, when I moved here, I had no idea that Newfoundland does not—it's not something that they do to have annual physicals. No, they I leave the onus on the individual to look yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah, but that's—I mean—then you wonder why there's such a high rate of illnesses and cancers and all that stuff here because things aren't being caught that could easily be caught that maybe they, they're not aware. They think it's something that's not much going on. They're, you know, they should be having annual blood work, annual, just even, you know, doing uh, breast exams and things like that. But, you know, the doctor does do, and that is also something that nurse practitioners do in Ontario. They are capable of doing that and billing that. They're, they are capable of billing of referring for x-rays, blood work, and most exams, and, you know, limited to a certain certain things. But, sure. You know, but just the fact that there's no, that, that it's not something that is is done here. Now, whether, I guess it's just the government doesn't feel that there's a need to do annual exams. I'm not sure of the rationale behind that, but just so I understand, in Ontario, you have a regularly scheduled annual physical just yep. because? 
Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that to be true. I had no well, I've never lived in Ontario. Yeah. Um, interesting. What yeah, part of Ontario did you live in? Um, just outside Toronto. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just like when I came here and met, you know, my new doctor and everything, and I, I live out in Carbonear area, and when I have some medical issues, so I needed to have a family doctor when I moved here. My doctor is actually out in CBS. That's where we had to, my husband and I had to look for doctors. We ended up going to CBS, which for us at our age, we don't mind because there's always a reason you got to go into town and make a day of it. But I know that's not feasible for a lot of people, but we were lucky to get a doctor when we moved here. There's a lot of people on waiting lists when you're moving here. And now, of course, getting worse. Absolutely. And if you are someone who is looking for a family doctor or to be on the patient roster at one of these clinics, you need to register. You go to Patient yes. Connect NL and put your information in there, including your postal code, which will determine whether which clinic or one or the other that you're going to be put on their waiting list, which I've had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that was one thing when I went there and I said, okay, you know, like I just had my annual physical before coming out and, you know, do it. And she said, oh, no, no, we don't do that here in Newfoundland. And I thought like that, that's just something like just doing an annual blood work, a routine blood work, something like that can totally like that could, you know, see um, certain levels of red blood count, white blood count, things like that. Just doing something routinely annually. You know, can, could catch a lot of things that people aren't aware that they have. And then by the time people are finding out out here in Newfoundland, they're finding it out and it's way too late because they've had no signs. Even just the doctor, even feeling your lymph nodes, feeling, you know, feeling around your lymph nodes, checking your mobility. Um, anything simple as that that someone just takes for granted because they think, oh, it's been like this all this time. It's nothing. That's just the way I am. And it could be a, a huge, huge impact on their life. Yeah, sometimes you boil it down, and I'm looking inward here, is I blame some stuff on just getting old when, in fact, maybe there's more to it. than. And, again, I don't, I'm not nearly attentive enough to these issues i talk about them more than i act on them for my own mm-hmm. individual responsibility and so i'm hoping that i get on the roster of one of these clinics because you know i got a couple of things bouncing around that i'd like to know a bit more about you know as opposed to just saying wow oh, i'm getting old then that's not good yeah enough. Yeah, and then the thing is, you may go in and you may have a, a, a little list of the doctor to check this and look at this and, you know, check my ears, check my eye or whatever. And there could be another little thing that, you know, they, you can't go in with a long list because it basically it does end up being a physical. And how do they how do they bill that? They just build it as a, as a regular, you know, exam or a regular visit or however they bill it. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just, that was something I was just so thrown away with when I came out here and like we moved out here and we plan on you know being here till we retire or you know like until we die kind of thing so you know to know that I'm that we're going into a health system that you need to be on top of yourself and you know it's just not many people are are able to be to be like that Fair enough. Um, there's a lot of things that we don't do here that we probably should be doing here. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate you making time as a first-time caller, Nancy. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Thank right. you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay. Let's see here. Will I take Sean before we go? All right. Let's do exactly that. Let's go to line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Lots of interesting issues this morning. Absolutely. I have my N95 on. You have to forgive me. I just came into Atlantic Place to go to a meeting. And, uh, and then I called your, your producer, and he said, yes, we'll get you on. So I wanted to tell you a little experience I had, actually a big experience in my life. 
back in the uh, back in the mid 70s during the Cold War, and uh, down at Virginia Beach, Virginia, there was a nuclear base down there of nuclear subs and so on. And thanks to the Navy League of Canada and cadets, I was selected to go off on that trip with five other Canadians from all across the country, uh, very interesting people from Quebec to Vancouver. And it was really a life-changing time, you know. And when I heard Captain Forward of the Navy League on this morning, immediately I had a flush of warm, warm memories come back to me. You know, like it was tough because you had to live like a Navy sailor would on a, on a, on a U.S. destroyer. And wherever they went, you went. You know, you shadowed them or they shadowed you. So I wanted to say for all the grandparents and parents listening out there this morning that it is one of the best experiences to get into cadets early. And I had the pleasure of spending a lot of time in different parts of the province, going to different Navy League events, like, for example, Harbor Grace was a favorite of mine. And I was uh, billeted out there with Frank Morris's uh, uh, nephew, uh, Chris Nuttheim. You might remember uh, Mr. Morris's sister, uh, Megan. And Bob Nuttheim used to write for the Daily News, our newspaper at the time. But he was in cadets, and I used to go out and build it with him. And it was just a wonderful experience to, to get to meet all these different people from Milan to, to Corner Brook and all the way back to St. John's. And because of that, you had the opportunity to, to, uh, to uh, apply for and sometimes receive that great letter from the Navy League saying, yes, you've been selected to go. And it was just unbelievable. So thank you to Captain Forward for bringing that memory back to me this morning. Well, pleasant memories are uh, a hopeful outcome with some of the conversations that we have here. I really enjoyed talking to Captain Ford here this morning, and congratulations to those two young cadets being recognized on the national front. Uh, thanks for your time this morning, Sean. Good luck at your meeting. Just terrific. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, you can have the last word. If you get it in the queue, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jen Dion. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. Uh, Good morning. Good morning to you. And uh, I don't know if you've been tuned in throughout the show, but we certainly did talk about your dad and other seniors because it's not just a story about Rod Dion, who I've had the pleasure of meeting, and his inability to get Paxlovid, one of the antivirals that have been approved. But so many other seniors might be in the exact same boat. Go ahead and tell your dad's story for us. Well, I totally agree with you. It's not just about dad. But um, when uh, dad... Uh, was exposed to COVID. We knew uh, that I had exposed him inadvertently. His uh, nurse practitioner had him prepped, said, well, don't worry, if he tests positive, we'll get him on the antiviral rules right away. So as part of that, you have to do a blood test. So that happened last week. And we actually thought we were in the clear for a while, but unfortunately on day nine, uh, dad uh, turned symptomatic and tested positive. So this was yesterday, and uh, so we immediately put the plan into action. And when the nurse practitioner heard back from the issuing pharmacy that the authorization was declined, she was shocked, um, and she phoned them and, and, and advocated with them to ask why. And uh, it was really comes down to uh, the current policy – uh, determines that if you are triple vaccinated, regardless of age, you are considered fully vaccinated and therefore not quali- not at, as at risk. And that, of course, as you know, is a provincial policy, which is different by every province. 
for instance, Ontario, anyone 70 and up, uh, regardless of vaccination status, is acknowledged as extremely at risk and can access the antivirals. So, you know, um, there's only five days in which you can take them for them to be any good. So the clock was ticking and uh, I started to do the only thing I feel I can do, which is communicate about it. The guidelines are different province to province, which is something that I've never really fully understood, whether, you know, we talk about getting vaccine guidance from NASI, and most provinces adopted it when it came out. But when we talk about this drug being approved, this Paxlovid, I wonder what the rationale is behind any different guidelines, because a senior citizen living in Ontario, no different than one living here necessarily, especially when we lean back on vaccination status. So... I don't really get it. You know, are we being careful with the uh, the numbers of courses that we have of this particular drug? I don't know. They got 500 dose or 500 courses delivered in January. I don't think even 200 people have been uh, prescribed Paxlovid as of yet. So, we, you know, same thing with rapid antigen, uh, antigen tests. We get 1.4% of the national stock, and yet we have treated them differently than other provinces. So I'm at a bit of a loss very here. very similar situation. I, and, I told, and obviously, I personally agree with you. I just got off the phone with uh, the continuing care pharmacist. I only just got the news that dad is officially going to get these antivirals. So he's getting them. He's going to get them today. Okay, good. And when I said, I mean, and that's great. And, you know, that obviously doesn't discount the fact that everybody should get them. So when I talked to the pharmacist about it, she said, yes, they want everybody to have them. She said it is heartbreaking for them to have to turn down case after case that doctors and nurse practitioners are sending in these requests for the drugs that the pharmacy is hampered by the policy and unable to fill. Also, there's only one pharmacy in this province that is authorized to issue this drug, which is ridiculous when you look at, uh, again, other provinces, this has been appropriately put into the community pharmacies, the pharmacies that know the patient, that can look at drug interactions. It's not such a burden on a, on a one on a, um, on, on one place. So even if they do update the policy, it's also got to change how we distribute the drug because it's, it's a very it's, it's, it's bangled in red tape right now. And that when you're talking uh, days and minutes that matter to get people this drug, it can't be like that. Well, and to further exacerbate the issue, you have to make your way all the way to St. John's to see an infectious disease specialist before you can even entertain the conversation about being prescribed this one particular antiviral. So, well, that's not that's not quite true. It's a special oh. authorization form that, as, as I understand it, again, you and I are both lay people here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, as I understand it, it's a special authorization form that any nurse practitioner or um, or family physician has access to. The initial news, well, initially from the government, they were quite clear that you had to see that particular specialist, of course, which may, meant it, it was a travel no. issue and even access to no. that. So if that's changed, well, that's, that's good. Well, that's not what Dad's experience was. I can just say that. Like Fair enough. We, his NP was ready to go, had the form, sent it in, knew where to send it, and 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 the uh, the brick wall was just the, when we hit the policy. 
Well, that's a, obviously a very wise change to protocol that I did not know. But if lived experience is better than what I read. So I appreciate that piece of information this morning, Jen. Uh, quickly, no uh, it's good news that he's going to get this treatment. Uh, and how is he? He's okay. <laughs> We're trying to keep his fever. Two big things you have to watch for is his oxygen level and his fever. Um, we're pretty savvy here at the house. We've got a pulse oxometer. We've got a digital thermometer. We've even got a, a, a mask nebulizer to help with his breathing. So we're doing everything we can to keep his stats uh, where they should be and keep him out of hospital. Say hello to him and wish him well on my behalf. And thank you for your time this morning, Jen. Thank you. Take, Take good care. care. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. I'm pretty sure that's the last word we'll have time to squeeze in this morning. So that's good. You know, uh, easier access points is always in our best interest because it can't be as restrictive as it currently is. And I will wonder aloud why the guidelines are different here than they would be elsewhere. All right. Good show today. Appreciate the support the program gets from all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.